0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit Hey, And my family, if you're newer with us, my name's Matt, and uh, this is my 18th year as a pastor here at Fountain of Life. (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, we're all a little uh, overly clappy today because um, my family and I just received an amazing gift from you—a uh, three-month sabbatical—and I got to tell you, it was just—it exceeded my expectations. It was such a rich, revitalizing time. I'm very thankful. As a family, we're very thankful. And you should know, we we went to church um, nearly every Sunday during our time away. And though we appreciated all those churches, I speak for all of us when I say. Fountain of Life remains our favorite church. Isn't that right, guys? Yeah. So I do want to, I know you just did this, but I want to recognize you as a church. It's no small thing for a church to let their pastor rest for three months and do, do well during that time. And I, that's what you've done. So can we just, for glory to God and thanks to you and the leaders, is thank you so much. So at Fountain of Life, we like to preach through books. We think that's the best practice for many reasons. We're gonna start that next week. We're gonna do the prophet Jonah, so come back for that. But I have been advised by people I trust, and it seems like the right thing to do, first to just give you some lessons that were important to me during this time of sabbatical. You know, I had a good amount of time of retreat. I had a lot of time of reading, some time of solitude, some prayer. And as I began that time, It's hard to explain, but it was almost like I I took off this mantle of, like, leadership and responsibility, and I was almost numb at first after that. And then the first thing that leaked out of my heart, what would you think it would be? Well, I'll just tell you, it was sinfulness. It was sinfulness. I'm selfish. I'm irritable. I'm fearful. And a host of other things I won't go into. I remain legitimately a sinner. Now, that shouldn't surprise anyone in here from a theological point of view, right? But it's another thing to feel the conviction of it, isn't it? To feel the conviction of it. And I think, I hope God used that lesson to help me drive deeper into my reliance on my relationship with Jesus, And so I'm happy to tell you, praise to God, as I stand here today three months later, I love Jesus more than ever. I love him so much. And I'm learning more and more to find my rest in him. So with that in mind, I want to turn our attention on to Matthew 11 and remember the great invitation. The great invitation. This is Jesus' invitation to me here in Matthew 11. It is also Jesus' invitation to you. Here in Matthew 11, and of course many of many of us have heard this before. Have you heard this before? Come to me, all you weary and heavy laden. I had read this before Sabbatical. I want you to know. I'd even preached on it a couple of times. But the first lesson here maybe is to realize that the Christian life is not so much about continually learning new information, as it is about going deeper and deeper into what you already know, but only know in part you got to go deeper into what you already know, but only know in part. So let's take a moment and pray, and then we'll look at this invitation together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for this church. Lord, some of us have been here for decades and decades. Some of us, have, this is our first time. We're just so thankful to you, Lord, for your church. You create your church You save your church, you love your church, you build your church, you gather your church, and you give us this invitation, and Lord, we need to hear it. So I pray, Lord, that as we work through this text, that your Holy Spirit would just crack open our hearts a little more, open our eyes a little more, open our ears to hear the voice of Jesus, to understand what he's saying more deeply, and to respond with all we are. I pray, Lord, that each one here would hear your voice uniquely to our own hearts, and we each would come to you in humility and trust and find rest there in who you are. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So looking at this great invitation, something we wanna go deeper in and literally forever go deeper in this invitation, this morning I wanna notice four things with you from this text, Okay, just to set it up. Number one, we're going to think about the setting of this invitation, and with that, I'm just going to reference the things, some of the things that happened earlier in Matthew 11, the setting in which Jesus gives this invitation. Number two, want to see Jesus' attitude as he gives this invitation? I think you'll find it strange, confronting. It it will be shocking. So we want to see his attitude as he makes the invitation. That sets us up to hear the nature of the invitation itself. It all just gets us ready for this invitation. And then finally, we'll see the pattern of his invitation. And what I mean there is just, what, is some of it, what does this look like to live this out a little bit, okay? So it might be a little too much for one sermon, but you have, you have to realize I haven't preached here in three months, <laughs> right? Three months. So first, the setting of the invitation. Look at Matthew 11:25. 25. At that time, Jesus declared. You just pause there already. If the narrator says, at that time, you should at least think a little bit about what's going on with the time. And I'll tell you right away, the setting, that time is one of difficulty. It's a setting of difficulty. We can't go into all the details this morning, but in the beginning of chapter 11, you have John the Baptist, right? Jesus' very cousin, his prophetic forerunner. The one who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. John, he's in prison. And due to the nature of Jesus' ministry and being in prison, John is now deeply discouraged to the point where the prophetic forerunner sends messages to Jesus saying, are you really the one? Are you legit? I mean, think about how, first of all, how great John is in the history of God's work in the world, and then this man is deeply discouraged. It's a time of difficulty, and you keep reading, John's going to have his head cut off, almost just ridiculously, by a tyrannical king. It's a reminder of what this world can be like. It's a reminder of what life can be like. And for sure, it was a stark reminder to Jesus of, of what his life would be like. There's a reason Jesus is called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knows grief very well. His whole life, in a way, was one of suffering. and the culmination of his life, the reason he came was to suffer. He would be rejected, unjustly tried, executed for us, but it's just a setting of difficulty. This interaction regarding John, leads Jesus then to consider the response of the people at large to his ministry. So in Matthew 11, he's been going for a while. So he responds to the people at large. Verses 20 to 24, if you read those later, Jesus begins to call down judgment on the major cities of Israel. Why? They won't repent. And it's, it must have been exasperating, Jesus has come, and his presence is right in front of them. Haven't you ever thought, wouldn't it be amazing to just see Jesus and be with him? Well, they did. And he has poured out his love and his labor, his teaching, his miracles. He has healed countless people. So these, these cities have the greatest privilege they could ever have the promises of God they say they love are being fulfilled in front of them. They have every conceivable evidence. They're not only not interested, they're hostile to Jesus. And here's his judgment. Look at Matthew eleven twenty-three. 23. You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. (laughs) But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Friends, those are some of the heaviest words you can conceive of. And I'm tempted to just unpack all of this. I mean, there's a day of judgment, Jesus says, Each one of us is gonna stand before Jesus Christ and answer for how we've lived, every detail. And, And the justice will be so clean and pure where Jesus has the ability to weigh not just what did happen, but what theoretically would have happened if Sodom had seen what you saw, they would have repented. So we'll be measured not just by what happened, but, but by all possible implications, the justice will be perfect. But most shocking of all, I mean, if you read the Old Testament a little bit, you read about Sodom, what shall we say? They're bad, right? I mean, they're bad, vile, decrepit, scary, terrifying, disgusting. You realize Capernaum, um, they would have been really nice religious people. They went to church. They knew Bible verses. They had a moral compass. They had respect towards God. They were spiritual. And Jesus says, they're worse than Sodom. How can this be? Well, it's because of the privilege of revelation that they received. It's because of privilege of revelation that they received. They saw Jesus Christ, and they're responsible for that. So this ought to to scare each one of us a little bit. You should be a little bit scared right now. Why? How many sermons have some of you heard? How many Bible verses have some of you read? You have heard of Jesus Christ. You're hearing about him right now. What are you doing with that revelation? What is it doing in you? Jesus is calling for judgment because they will not repent. Anyway, I saw that and I thought, well, that's the second aspect of a time of difficulty. Do you think it was difficult for Jesus in his human nature to go and live and love and serve and teach and heal and have in general everyone reject him? Rejection of his ministry. Rejection of who he is. It's a time of difficulty. At that time, Jesus begins to give this invitation. Now I want you to see his attitude in this invitation. This, his words are just staggering. Uh, just to set us up for these next words, I'll just, I'll just ask you be honest with yourself. Don't say it out loud, it'd be awkward. How do you handle settings of difficulty in your life? If you're honest, how many of you are like, well, I tend to be strong, peaceful, and courageous. (laughs) I, I tend to be wise, measured, and patient. How many of you are like, well, I'm always looking for what God's doing in my life for my holiness and really leaning into that. I spend more time in prayer and worship During times of difficulty. All right. Okay. How does Jesus respond to times of difficulty, real difficulty? Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. First of all, in this setting of disappoint of, of difficulty, Jesus is praying and is thankful. And he is he denying God? Is he bitter towards God? No. He's thanking God, and especially what is he thanking and praising his father for? Well, I want to summarize it like this, sovereign grace. Sovereign grace, unpack those words. Grace, first of all, grace, what is it? It's not something you can put in a bottle. It comes from this personal God who pours out lavish love for the totally undeserving. It's the lavish love of God for the totally undeserving. That's what grace is but then I threw that strange word in front of it, sovereign grace. What's sovereign mean? Absolute control. Absolute control. Let me ask you a question. To whom does God owe his grace? God owes Grace and salvation to no one. And some of you might say, wait, what? That's not fair. Do we want to go into what fairness would be? If God was perfectly just and fair, no grace, we would all go to hell. Do you know, do you know that about yourself? It's a really important thing to say. Hopefully, you won't go home this afternoon and be like, man, that preacher, hellfire and brimstone, what was he doing for sabbatical? It's one of the most loving, listen, it's one of, the most, one of the most loving things God ever did for me was to show me how I deserve to go to hell. I'm not being self-righteous. I really not. It's not my motivation in this at all. I'm not trying to push you away. I think this is how God loves us. I des- I deserve to go to hell. And so... That staggers you at first, right, to taste that. It does, because you realize that what you need the most, you can never attain on your own. Do you realize how hopeless that is? You need grace with infinite desperation, and you cannot force him to give it to you. You cannot do anything to attain it. You're dependent and on your own, hopeless. This is what Jesus is talking about. God is sovereign over who receives his grace. And so I I think it's fascinating. In this time of difficulty, Jesus has just talked about how, right, the the cities at large are rejecting him. And you you might think he would say, am I doing this right? And that's what I say, right? (laughs) Am I doing this right? You might think he would say, Father, you know, am I, am I making mistakes? What am I doing wrong? Everybody's rejecting me. No, 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 it's, it's not even in his mind at all, is it? Is, is it the way he thinks at all? Is, it, is, is he worried about this at all? No, he sees this difficulty as being directly under the sovereign hand of his Father, and he praises his Father for that. Isn't that amazing? And he thanks his father, even in the setting of people rejecting him. Because look what he says. I thank you, Father, that you've hidden things of salvation from certain people. So you have to put that, you have to put that in your theological mind. Somehow, in some way, the beauty of Jesus and what he's done is hidden from a certain kind of people. And did you see who it is that can't see it? the wise and understanding that's that's not about whether or not you went to college okay it's about the attitude of your heart specifically towards jesus in this context the phrase is not a compliment how many of you would like to be wise and understanding in general it's okay all right in context it's not a compliment it's it's the city he's judged that is wise and understanding. Because see, they're so wise and understanding in their own sight that they think they don't need Jesus desperately. They they think they're so wise and understanding in their own sight, they're self-righteous, and that self-righteousness disqualifies them from seeing the beauty of Jesus and their need for him. It's hidden, and Jesus praises his father for this. And you know, in one way, I can see why. Can you see why? Imagine if it wasn't this way. The community of God's people, what would we look like? We would be prideful and rejoice in our own accomplishments. Look how awesome we are. Listen, the true community of God's people will never be the prideful who rejoice in their own accomplishments. No. The true church, our, our main attitude is not, look how wonderful we are. No. The true church, the true people of God will be a community of the humble who rejoice in God's sovereign grace towards them. the father here is not only acting in judgment, he is also acting in mercy. He's hidden things of salvation from one kind of people, but he's revealing them to another kind of people. And did you see who it is that gets to know his salvation? Little children. Now, some of us are like, well, he's revealing it to the innocent, because little children are innocent. No. (laughs) If you've been a parent for very long, you're like, no, no, and then that doesn't work, The innocent, no. How many of you, God revealed himself to you because you're innocent? No, that's not what it means. Well, what does it mean to be little children? It's all about sincerity and acknowledging your need for Jesus. You you really know you need Jesus because here's one thing every little toddler knows. He knows he needs his mom and he is not at all ashamed to go to his mom for what he needs. Can I get an amen from all the moms, right? He's coming and he's coming again and again and again. And again, all within five seconds. (laughs) It's coming. He needs you, and he's coming to you for what he needs. And he knows he needs you, and he's not shy to come to you for what he needs. Do you see the attitude God's people are supposed to have towards Jesus? I need you now, and now, and now, and now, and now. I need you. They're humbled, and they see they need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So, talk about not doubting himself. Jesus now, he praises his Father for sovereign grace, and then he proclaims himself as the only and unique mediator of this grace. Look at verse 27. I mean, if, if you thought Jesus was just a good person, read verse 27. Poof, cannot be. Look at what he says in verse 27 All things have been handed over to me by my father, unique, absolute authority. Then he says, no one knows the son except the father, unique, absolute knowledge. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him, unique, absolute sovereignty. Jesus is truly God, the second person of the Trinity, and he is the mediator of sovereign grace, which means the only way to know God and to be right with God is through a humble faith in Jesus Christ. You are in desperate need of Jesus choosing you, Jesus working on your behalf, Jesus revealing the Father to you, Jesus is your only hope. Is your only hope. How much do you need the grace of Jesus? And let me, let me ask you a better question. How much does your heart know how much you need the grace of Jesus? You need it more than you think. More than you think. You need it. So look, it's a setting of difficulty and Jesus' attitude in context of this, invita- of this invitation, his, his, he's rejoicing in his father's sovereign grace. Do you see that? Setting of difficulty, that's part of this invitation. Rejoicing in the father's sovereign grace, that's part of this invitation. He's rejoicing. We're humbled. All this sets us up for this invitation. And what does he say in verse 28? Three simple words. Come to, what does he say? Me come to me, come to me. Three things I want you to see about the nature of this invitation. Number one, it's personal, it's personal. Here at Found of Life, we love doctrine, right? Or at least a lot of us do, I love doctrine. Do you love doctrine? I love it, okay? Propositional truths about God because we're sick of like experience defining what God is like, no thank you. We don't want to invent this. No, thank you. I want to hear from God, about God. He tells us who he is. It's loving to love doctrine. Just don't forget the point of the doctrine is always the person. The point of the doctrine is always the person. Do you think Jesus is just a list of facts? It's more than a list of facts. Do you think you've come to the end of knowing Jesus and what he's like. Oh, are you kidding me? Not close. He's more than a religious institution. He is a living, thinking, feeling, acting, hating, loving, relating person. He is the most grand, most terrifying, most beautiful person there ever could be. You know, sometimes you come to church and things aren't plugged in right, and and we mess up, and I mess up, and it seems disappointing, and you might you kind of get distracted and you think, is that Christianity? And and look, it's church, it's an essential way to live out Christianity, but don't let our failures or weakness or humility distract you from the absolute glory of the person of Jesus. And he invites you to come to him. He's inviting you to come to him right now. Come to me. It's personal. And I find this both exhilarating and threatening. Why would this be threatening? Oh, come on. Wouldn't it be easier just to go to church and be a little moral and be a little religious, be a little spiritual? You can feel good about yourself, at least a little better than some other people. And you can keep God at bay and stay in control of your life. But Jesus says, no, 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 you, you, you come to me threatening, it's also exhilarating. This is the eternal son of God, big enough to think about me and you, right here, right now in Fountain Valley 2022. Is he, is he big enough to know and think about you and invite you sitting in that awkwardly green chair? Right now, is he calling you? Yes. C.S. Lewis, I think, illustrates this environment of being called by Jesus to come to him. He does it in his book, uh, The Silver Chair. So this character, Jill, meets the lion Aslan, who's obviously to remind us of Jesus, and he's sitting over this stream. I'm going to read a section of this to you, okay? Although the sight of water made Jill feel 10 times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she'd been turned into stone with her mouth wide open, and she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. If I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried. She couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours And the thirst became so bad, she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if she could only be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you're thirsty, come and drink. It was a deeper, wilder, stronger, sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before. It made her frightened in a rather different way. "'Are you not thirsty?' said the lion. "'I'm dying of thirst,' said Jill. "'Then drink,' said the lion. "'May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do?' The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The the delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one had seen his stern face could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. This is a personal invitation, and in this illustration, Jesus is both the lion and the stream. To know him is to be overcome by who he is, and be satisfied, he personally calls you to come to him. This invitation is also fundamental. This is a picture of conversion, isn't it? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You begin to see your need for Jesus, right? No more trusting in your religious accomplishments. No more trusting in your achievements. No more trusting in your comparisons with others. You realize your need and you humbly come to him by faith. You trust in his life, his perfection, not yours. You look to his death on the cross in your place for your sin. You bank on his resurrection and ascension. He's your savior and your king. But I want to ask you, if you're, if you're a Christian, well, first of all, if you're not a Christian, come to Jesus. Trust him. If you are a Christian, I'll ask you, okay, you've come to Jesus. Are you done now coming to Jesus and are, are you moving on to other things? Is there something more Christian varsity than coming to Jesus? Is that like the basics and now you're on to really high mountains? Really, it's a terrible thought, isn't it? Coming to Jesus is both the beginning and the continual breath of the Christian life. Learn from me. Come to me all the time. Always keep coming. I I was, I don't know where I picked this up, but think think about even the flow of the gospel of Matthew, right? How many of you have heard of the great commandment? You've heard of it, right? Love God with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself, okay? Okay. You haven't done that on your own, you can't, and you don't really want to. Uh, Then there's the great commission at the end of Matthew, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. Um, Well, you haven't, and on your own, you can't, and you don't really want to. It just struck me. Before you do the great commandment and before you do the great commission, you've got to always be coming to the great invitation. You've got to be coming to the great invitation. And as you embrace Jesus who's invited you to himself, then he leads you in incredible ways into loving God and your neighbor and wanting to make disciples. This is fundamental. I cut about half a page of notes here because we could go into how heaven itself is you coming to Jesus. Jesus prays in John 17, Lord, Father, I pray that they will be with me where I am to see my glory. Being with Jesus is heaven itself. It's the point. It's the start and the middle and the end. It's everything. It's fundamental. It's my first priority. It's my first priority. I've got to be close with Jesus. I got to come to him. I would suggest it should be your first priority as well. The first priority of your mind and your heart, coming close to Jesus. So the question you need to ask yourself is, how should I pursue that? And what's in the way? What's in the way? Nothing matters in your life in comparison to you coming to Jesus. So it's a personal invitation, it's a fundamental invitation. It's a gracious invitation. Maybe you um, are thinking, well, I'd like to come to Jesus, but I'm not good enough. Or maybe you're thinking, I've come and then I left him, I don't know if he'll let me come back. Or maybe you're thinking, I've screwed up too many times, I've betrayed him, I've flaked. I've said one thing, I've done another. Jesus has got to be sick of me at this point. Have you ever thought that before? I have. He's too grand and too holy. I'm too rot and rotten and corrupted. You know, maybe I had one star come to me and I didn't quite come right. And now he's like, well, don't, I don't want you coming back. What's the qualification for coming to Jesus? This is really important. Let's see. Was it come to me, all you who are holy and pious? No. Come to me, those of you who are smart and successful. No, come to me, those of you who are well put together and in control. No, no, come to me if you've led your life really well with no regrets. No, come to me, those of you who are intelligent and insightful. Come to me, you who are theologically precise. Be careful, don't forget Your trust in your own excellence could actually disqualify you. There's one posture for coming to Jesus. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. The weary heart says, the standard's too high for me. I can't do it. The weary heart says, my sin is too much for me. The weary heart says, I know I am not enough in myself. I need you. I'm sinful, guilty, ashamed, insufficient. I'm humble, Jesus. I need you. And now don't forget this either. When you have a humble heart that senses your need for Jesus, that's the Father's sovereign grace in your life. Oh, we get this backwards. I would come to Jesus if I could get, get myself better. Friends, that's the road to judgment because you won't actually come to Jesus if you think you made yourself better. You'll reject him. He'll be like good advice to you or a helper, but he won't be your savior. No, when you know you need him, look, it's perfect. It's perfect. Through faith, your need meets his sufficiency. You're weary and heavy laden. You know, that's perfect. It works just right because he's gentle and lowly. He's gentle. You're weary. He's gentle. Strength under control in tender love. I'm weary. Good, I'm gentle. I'm heavy laden. I can't make it. Good, I'm lowly. I'm accessible. I'm right here. When you come to him in humility, your need for him draws him to you. He loves to come to people like that. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. I need you. He says, I'm here. I'm here. And he says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, which means like, it's not a mood ring I put on Sunday mornings and then take it off. He's always gentle and lowly for all of his people all the time who he is. Ah, this is a personal, fundamental, and gracious invitation. Don't you want to take up this invitation? All right, just one last thought, the pattern of the invitation, the pattern. Jesus says, when you come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, he says, uh, take my yoke upon you. My yoke, well, what is that? Um, be used to tie oxen together, right, so they can pull in the same direction. But even in that time, it was used um, symbolically. Um, a yoke could mean a standard of teaching. Like if you if you took somebody's yoke, you're you're following that person, and his leadership and that teaching. You've tied yourself to him. So Jesus does seem to be saying. Take off one yoke you're already wearing. Counterfeit authorities beating you up. Just take 10 seconds and ask yourself, what's, what's the yoke that's not Jesus that you're wearing? Some, some, something in your life that has too much authority than it, than it should. And you know what it is because you sense it's taking you away from Jesus. It's not faithfulness. You fear what people think certain kind of a relationship, you really want money. It's infinite. It's infinite what it could be. Take off the other yoke. Or even more, take off a sense of self-righteous accomplishment that you make yourself right with God by being good enough. Throw that thing in the fire. Take off that yoke and put mine on. But here's the glorious thing about it. When you're a Christian, Jesus has yoked himself to you forever. Sinclair Ferguson, I was listening to him on this. He said, you can see this from two ways. One is from the outside in. And again, it's threatening. So, so I'm going to be yoked to this person and he's going to be that close and he wants to control my life. And if you're thinking about becoming a Christian or if you realize you're not really living in the Christian life, you're like, wait, he wants to yoke himself up to me and control my life. And what's the answer, Christians? Yes. Yeah, that's right. If you don't want to put on his yoke, you're not ready to be a Christian. You're not humbled enough. But then from the inside out, it's all the more beautiful. I mean, how many of you love the idea that Jesus is always right here? And he's yoked to you. And so he actually says, my burden's light because I'm doing the heavy lifting. My yoke's easy because I'm always right here. So I want to call this, this pattern of this relationship, I want to call it a submitted friendship with Jesus. So I want to to get those words right. When I say friendship, here's an error in using that word. The error would be friendship without authority, as if you're like, Jesus is your buddy. No, or or it's kind of the idea of like, you said to Jesus, hey, put on my yoke. (laughs) I'll use Jesus to do what I want. No, it's it's not your yoke he's putting on. It's his yoke you're putting on. So there's a submission to him. He takes you where he wants you to go. And sometimes it's even the valley of the shadow of death. But let's not get the other side wrong either. There's an error of seeing his authority without seeing his heart. Is Jesus a brutal authoritarian? No, he's gentle and lowly in heart and his purpose for you is your rest in him. It's infinitely kind, mind-blowingly kind. He's a friend. Look at some of these verses in case you're questioning me on this. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. You know who that really is, right? That's Jesus. Well, there's one thing Jesus' enemies got right about him, Matthew 11, 19. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. Well, they're wrong so far, but what's this next phrase? A friend of tax collectors and sinners. And all God's people said, amen. John 15, 13, greater love, has no one than this, than someone, what? Lay down his life for his friends. Look at his heart, his love, but look at John 15, 14. You're my friends if you do what I command you. There it is, right? Submitted friendship with Jesus. What an invitation. Well, so here we are in times of difficulty, Do I need to illustrate that for anyone? Um, Here we are in times of difficulty, and Jesus has invited us to come to him. Let's remember, in times of difficulty, where did Jesus look? His Father's sovereign grace. In times of difficulty, where should we look? The Father's sovereign grace in yoking us to Jesus. Jesus that we get to be saved by Jesus, known by Jesus, loved by Jesus, led by Jesus, taught by Jesus, that he would yoke himself up to us. This is heaven. And there's two ways I think we know him, that we live out this pattern, okay? I'll end with this, but first, let's look at Philippians 3 just for a moment. Two ways of knowing Jesus. Philippians three eight, Paul's uh, this is almost the same thing as right is coming and taking on the yoke. It's just I think it's a different way to say it. Philippians three eight, indeed I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Do you see what he did with all other yokes and all other authorities? Don't care, I'm leaving them behind. Paul says, for His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may what's the one thing he wants? End of verse eight. I want to gain Christ. (laughs) Verse 9, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith. Here's the first way you know him. You become a Christian, okay? You repent of your sin. You quit trying to be good enough according to the law. You cannot do it. And you bank all your hope on being right with God, with the perfect life of Jesus Christ, his death for you on the cross, and his resurrection. Jesus is your righteousness, and it's a gift you receive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's free. Amen, church? That's how you know him. You believe the gospel. So if you haven't believed the gospel, believe it. Believe it today. Be righteous in Christ. And oh, the security of knowing your righteousness, your sufficiency doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from you. It comes from him. So we're saved by believing in the gospel. Amen? Amen. But what does our salvation look like? And so often this comes, like a, this comes as a surprise. We're saved by the gospel. It's outside of us. It's something Jesus has done for us. But now we live our salvation by reenacting the gospel. Not to save ourselves. The gospel itself did that. But we live out our salvation by reenacting the gospel. Look at verse 10. This is Paul continuing. Verse 10. It's the second way of knowing him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may, do you want to hear this? Look at the next three words. And may share his sufferings. That word share is fellowship. It's a deep connection. You share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attend to the resurrection from the dead. He saved you by dying and rising. Very simply put, and if you're saved now that you're yoked up with him, where is he going to take you all the time? Dying and rising. Dying and rising. Uh, one author, Paul Miller, wrote a book called J Curve, and it, it works in English, I guess, okay? Capital J, you ready? Maybe it's backwards for you, okay? What do you, what do, you do first in the J? Death, you go down into death. And and guess guess where Jesus is most close? Guess where he's most compassionate? Guess where you meet him? Right down there in the bottom. But then because you're yoked to Jesus, hey, he could not stay dead. He could not stay dead. He's gonna rise. And if you're yoked to him, guess what? You can't stay. You cannot stay dead. And if you share his sufferings are like Paul says in Romans 8. If you suffer with him, we're all going to suffer. The question is, will you suffer with him? If you suffer with him, what happens? What does he shoot you up into? Resurrection. Every time. This is what the yoke looks like. You think of three categories of ways to die. Just, just real quick. What's, what's one way to die? Well, how about love? Isn't love a little death? I mean, you're giving yourself up for the benefit of someone else. Uh, someone was here, like, prepping coffee and donuts today. Thank you for loving us, right? And there was a, a tiny little death. That person could have been doing something else. The person died to herself to come serve the church. And, and what does it bring? Yeah, it's a little, little micro version. What does it bring? It brings a resurrection. We have a context for fellowship and hang out with one another tiny, tiny. But isn't life made up of tiny J's? You just had another child. You got to change another diaper. Die, right? I don't want to serve anymore. I'm tired. And you serve. And guess who who knows how to serve tediously like a slave? Guess who knows how? Jesus knows he's with you right there in the difficulty of serving. And guess what it's going to bring when you suffer with him? Your love gives life to someone else. Love is a dying and a rising. Does Jesus know the cost of self-giving love? Are you kidding me? Is he there with you in it? And what's he going to bring? Resurrection. Or how about the death of fighting sin? Doesn't fighting sin feel like a death sometimes? Doesn't some of our sin feel like an addiction? feels like I can't stop. feels like I'd almost rather die than not have it. It owns me. I'm even thinking about leaving Jesus at the corner because I got to have this thing one more time. You want it. In a way, it's going to make you happy. I want it now. I won't wait. Jesus faced every temptation. Yet without sin, does he know what it's like? Does he, is he with you? When you say, Jesus, I need you, I cannot beat this by myself. Does he come and help you fight that sin? He does. And as you die in fighting it, what's going to happen? Resurrection. One last one. Maybe it's the hardest. The death of suffering and mistreatment. Suffering and mistreatment. Your dreams didn't come true. Something horrible happened. Someone treated you terribly. Let's just ask, yoke to Jesus, your yoke to Jesus, does he know what it's like to be mistreated? To be misunderstood? He knows. Where did he look in times of difficulty? His Father's sovereign grace, as you suffer with him. How do we do that? It's a longer conversation, but it has something to do with trusting him, it has something to do with trying to be in the streamline of what he's doing in your life through it. There's a whole other things, a host of other things like forgiveness or on and on. But if it's with him, if it's for him, what's he going to bring? And sometimes you can't even, can't even believe it, but what's he going to bring somehow, some way, what's he going to bring? resurrection. Your suffering is never meaningless when it's with Jesus. That's what the yoke looks like. He takes us where he's going. The gospel that saves us is the gospel that forms us. And as we die with him, there's little R's in this life, Uh, resurrections, blessing, reconciliation, healing, holiness. But the big R, when he comes back, what, what happens? He renews all things. He renews all things, but there's one thing that will continue even when he comes back and makes a new heaven and a new earth. You know what we'll love the most? It's the same thing we are to love today. We'll love being with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are lessons I want to learn more deeply. Help us as a church to go and keep going to Jesus. we're so thankful, Lord, if anybody came today who has not had their heart changed by you, has not repented and trusted in you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just make the reality of your invitation so strong that they just can't resist trusting in you. And we pray that we'd be able to help them grow in that. For those of us who are Your people, remind us, Lord, how it's by grace. Let us be broken, humbled, submitting, resting, receiving, dying, so that we can be rising as we rejoice in your grace for us in giving us Jesus Christ. Let us go deeper and deeper into our relationship with him for your glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.